Father, the choir has led us into battle today. Just like in the days of old when the priests and the Levites and the singers would lead the way into the battle against the enemies of our God. We have entered your gates today with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. For those that walked into this room downcast and discouraged, I pray that you have already been the lifter of their heads, that you will remind them that you are the sustainer, the comforter, the sufficient one, that when we are in you, we have nothing to fear. Father, would you lift our eyes to the hills from whence comes our help? That we might see you. For Lord, we could look around at this world today and we could see all the problems and the adversity and the crisis and the injustice and be very discouraged. But when we look to you, we see no panic in the throne room of heaven. We see no anxiety to your right or to your left. Your son is making intercession for us. Your spirit is uttering prayers on our behalf that we can't even understand. And so lift our eyes and our heads to seek you today. Not a solution to our problems, but a savior who forgives us of our sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart as I preach today, Father, be acceptable in your sight. In the name of Jesus, amen. I want us to talk this morning about preparation, prayer and preparation for revival. This is the last message in the Keys to Revival series, and I want us to jump right into it, into the prayer of revival, the prayer of revival. A.T. Pearson, a great preacher of another era, said, from the day of Pentecost, there's not been one great spiritual awakening in any land which has not begun in a union of prayer, though only among two or three. And no such outward, upward movement has continued after such prayer meetings have declined. It is in exact proportion to the maintenance of such joint and believing supplication and intercession that the word of the Lord in any land and or locality has had free course and been glorified. Now, some time ago, I talked to you about the story of the two elderly ladies, sisters who were in their 80s. One was blind. The other one was uh, bent over by arthritis. Neither one could go to church, but they turned their home into a prayer meeting. And they prayed for revival. And the answer to their prayer 
was the revival in the Hebrides under Duncan Campbell from 1949 to 1952. It was a revival that in its initial weeks lasted almost three months, maybe longer. Duncan Campbell didn't think anything would happen there, but God had another plan. This was the scripture that these ladies fell on and believed God for. Isaiah 44, 3, I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. God wants to refresh us. God wants to renew us. Just like he did through those two elderly ladies who prayed for God to work, God wants to work in our midst. At the same time that they were praying, there were a group of men who were praying in a barn in the same region. And their eyes fell on Psalm 24. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. That one will see the blessings of God. One of the deacons that was in that barn prayer meeting said, it seemed to me just so much humbug to be waiting and praying as we are if we are not rightly related to God. It would be very easy for us in the times in which we live with an election year and with all the adversity in our country and in our economy and with all the things that are happening in our world, it would be easy for us to say, God needs to change all of that. This deacon got it right. It's humbug for us to pray and us not be right with God. It's wrong for us to ask God to make this world right and to correct the social evils of this world when we ourselves are not right with him. And so the prayer in 2 Chronicles, and we're going to end up in Exodus 32, but the prayer in 2 Chronicles in King James begins, if my people, now New American Standard says, then my people, if my people, it's still a good translation to use if or then there, but I want you to think about some other verses that begin with if. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask what you wish and it shall be done for you. There's an if with God. We live in the great if moment. If we do our part, God, based on his character, will do his. If we apply the principles of what God has said about how he comes to meet with his people, then God will, because of his very nature and the promises of his word, will do what he has said he will do. The if rests on us. Bill McLeod, who died just two weeks ago, the leader of the Canadian revival, said, our hearts should be so tender that if a leaf fell on it, it would leave an impression. I have to tell you, there are times when God's trying to speak to me and my heart is not that tender. 
Maybe that's not the case with you, but it is sometimes with me that God has to hit me upside the head with a hammer to get my attention because I can't get just the whisper of a leaf falling on me for it to make an impression on me. But, but Bill McLeod said in revival that when our hearts are tender, even the falling of a leaf on it will leave an impression on our lives. And so there are a couple of things here. First of all, God chooses to deal with us according to our choices. Now, don't miss this. God chooses to deal with us according to our choices. If you or I can live without a fresh touch from God, God will let us. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He does not intrude. He does not force. He does not coerce. He offers God will act with us according to our choices. Secondly, the way up is down. If we want to get up, we got to get down. We have to get down on our knees. We have to be broken of our pride and our self-sufficiency and our thoughts that we can fix our problems and cry out to God, plead before the throne of grace. He says, if my people, and then there's that phrase, and pray, and pray. Prayer is always a part of God's economy in revival. It's always a part of his economy on a daily basis. But when revival comes, it is, anticip it is uh, elevated. Now, here's what you and I need to understand about prayer. Prayer is not trying to convince God to change his mind. Prayer is cooperating with God what's already on his stated mind and in his stated will. It is getting his will done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not us getting our will done on earth. And pray. It's not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of God's willingness. Do you realize that God wants to answer the deepest longings of your heart more than you want them answered? But if there's hindrance, if there's a barrier, if there's sin, if there's a blockage in your spiritual heart, then God can't do all that he wants to do, and the choice is ours. Do we remove it to let God do his work, or do we resist it and then wonder why God's not working? A.C. Dixon said, when we depend on organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend on education we get what education can do. When we depend on man, we get what man can do. But when we depend on prayer, we get what God can do. We need to see what God can do. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, if they'll pray and seek my face. That word seek there means to search out or to long for. To search out. If we will search for the face of God, to long for the face of God. And, and in the preaching of the 21st century, what we typically long for is God's hand, not his face. 
God, do this for me. God, do this for me. God, do that for me. God, fix this for me. And what we want is we want God to be a plumber and an electrician and a carpenter and a fixer-upper kind of guy. God didn't come to fix you up. God came to make you over. He didn't come to put Band-Aids on your life. He came to give you a new heart. God didn't come to just put a bandage on something that's bleeding. He came to heal the hurt. And when we seek him, it means the focus of revival is not for God to solve our problems. It's not for God to fix our nation. Our focus in revival is for God himself to make himself manifest in our presence. It is a desire for the preeminent presence of God in our midst. So thick that you could cut it with a knife. I've been in services like that. I've been in moments when I have sensed the presence of God so thick that you can cut it with a knife. And, and I remember what Jeremiah says, if you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Here's what I know. You always find what you're looking for. You always find what you're looking for. If you're looking for a quick fix, that's what you'll get. If you're looking for a permanent touch of God that you never get over on your life, you can get that too. And turn from your wicked ways. Titus says that we are to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Now that's the prayer. Let's look at the person of revival. Like the two elderly ladies in the Hebrides, God is looking for people. And here I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Because Moses was one of those kind of people. Had a very encouraging phone call uh, this week. It started with a text message last week. It continued with more text messages. Every other day I would get another one. And then it was a phone call. Actually, I made the call about something else. But it's from a young pastor in another state who's about 30 years old. But God has given him a passion for revival. The text messages started while he was up just visiting at Life Action for their revival week. And God began to stir his heart about some things. When he got home from that revival week, he was met by one of his members who comes at least every three months. Who said, there are many of us who are tired of hearing about revival. And he said to the man, how would you know? You haven't been here. He said, well, I'm speaking for others who are concerned. Who are they? Well, they're just others. Name them. If you can't name them, you're lying to me. Well, they don't want you to know who they are. Now, listen, folks, this is the game every pastor plays with knuckleheads. Every pastor has to play this game. Because there's always those who are unnamed 
And so he said, what should I do? I said, confront him in the name of Jesus and rebuke him in the blood of Jesus. I said, because he's not speaking from God, he's speaking from the devil. Every word out of his mouth is from the pit of hell, and you need to confront him like it is. But here's what this encouraging phone call was about. Not that he did that. I just threw that in for free. Uh, <laughs> the phone call was about, he said, Michael, he said, God has told me that I am to spend my time as an intercessor for you and for Byron Paulus as voices of revival and that I am to spend hours every day praying specifically for you. How can I pray for you? Now that's a guy you don't even know. That's a guy who's heard me preach twice. And he said, God's told me that I'm to be an intercessor for you. Let me ask you something. Are you an intercessor for revival? I'm not just saying, pray, Lord, bless us and bless our church. I'm talking about, are you interceding, realizing that you're in a battle and a war that Satan wants to bring you down, wants to bring your family down, wants to bring your friends down, wants to bring this church down? Are you interceding? Now, here's why Moses is my example today. Because Moses prayed for people that didn't deserve to be prayed for. You thought about that? I mean, can you imagine being Moses, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Egyptian exiles? That was a fun crowd to be with. I mean, all they did was whine and complain. I mean, can you imagine pastoring a church where what they want for Wednesday night supper is garlic and leeks? And they want to sing Breathe on Me after they get through with that? I mean, what kind of crowd can you, uh, I mean, a million plus people have gone out in the wilderness and, and they deserve judgment. They deserve to be in bondage. The minute Moses takes his eye off of them, they get into gluttony and drunkenness and idolatry. But Moses intercedes for them. Can I tell you something? When I read that, sometimes I say, Moses is a better man than me. But Moses pleaded for grace when he didn't have to and pleaded for the people. Moses had been on the mountain meeting with God, and these people had forgotten that it was God answering their prayers that had gotten them delivered in the first place. But isn't it true in our lives that we quickly forget the goodness of God? I mean, we walk out of a worship service or we leave an altar and we say, I'll never be the same again. And by Tuesday, you've already blown it. What happened? You just hit a moment where you forgot the goodness of God and the grace of God. Now, let me give you some points here. First of all, in revival, God always reveals himself as holy. That's what he did with Moses. You remember if you read chapters 32, 33, and 34 of Exodus, 
You remember that when Moses met with God for 40 days, he came down and his face was glowing after he'd seen the backside of the glory of God. His face was glowing. He had to cover his face because it made the people afraid. God always reveals himself as holy. When we meet with God, we are always meeting on holy ground. We're always in the place where we are to take off our shoes. We're always in the place where we are to turn from our wicked ways. Paul knew this, 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You see, revival is seeing God as he is. And to see God as he is, I need to see my sin for what it is. My sin is what put Jesus on the cross. It was not the sin of the drug dealers and the drug addicts and the prostitutes and the, and the cultists that put Jesus on the cross. It's my sin that put Jesus on the cross. By the way, it was your sin too. And until we see the cross as God dying for us alone, we will never understand how bad our sin really is. We will never understand our depravity. As long as we look at the cross and say, God died for an evil world. Yes, he did. But he also died for you. And it took that death to save you. Because you couldn't be good enough to get to God without the cross. When God reveals himself, he reveals himself as holy. Secondly, in revival, sin is never justified. Sin is never justified. Sin blinds us to spiritual realities. It makes us walk in deception. It makes us live a lie. It makes us accuse God rather than appealing to God that he would forgive us of our sins. And that means two things. First of all, sin is never justified because it makes us ungrateful. Look at Exodus chapter 32. It makes us ungrateful. Exodus 32, 1. As for this Moses. Do you get it? It makes us ungrateful. As for this Moses, let's see. As for this Moses, what's become of him? You know, we need to move on. Oh, really? Let's see. Who did God send to deliver you? Well, that was Moses. And who stood before Pharaoh when you were being beaten? That was Moses. And who was it that God used to deliver you from all those plagues? Well, that was Moses. And who was it that prayed and the Red Sea opened? Well, that was Moses. And, And who was it that that said that manna would come from heaven. That was Moses. And yet after all of that, as for this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. You see, ingratitude is one of the great sins of the body of Christ. We become easily ungrateful for all the things that God has done for us. And we start looking at all the things we think he should have done for us. But can I tell you something? I'm grateful for prayers that God didn't answer that I prayed. There's some things that I prayed for knowing now what would have happened if I'd have gotten what I prayed for. I'm grateful God didn't answer some of those prayers. 
I can tell you, there, there were some points in my early years here, I prayed for God to get me out of this church. I begged God to get me out of this church. And I'm glad he didn't answer that prayer. Some of you say, well, could we vote on that? <laughs> but I'm glad God didn't answer that prayer. Because I wouldn't have seen some of the things that God's allowed me to see if I had run in times of trouble. It leads to ingratitude. Moses had stood before Pharaoh. He had been the means of the miracles. And what was behind all of this ingratitude was ingratitude to God. It would be like, Lord, I want you to deliver us, but instead of walking, could you get us a ride? Grateful for the deliverance, but could you do a little more than you've done? They were ungrateful to Moses, but it was really a sign that they were ungrateful to God. And, and here's what they did, and here's what you need to understand. And you ought to write this short phrase in Exodus 32. They held God in contempt. They held God in contempt. They were blaming God for Moses not being there. Their ingratitude revealed itself in rebellion. And see, if judgment comes to America, a nation that has not seen a nationwide movement of God since the 1850s, if God sends judgment to America, we should not be a complaining people in light of the fact that we have not sought him to do something significant Amen. in our midst. Now, I, I realize and I know I'm, I'm old school. I know that. I realize that people don't want to hear about holiness anymore. They don't want to hear about righteousness anymore. I realize that people want God in an hour and get out and let's go and do our thing. I, I realize that nobody wants to talk about the Ten Commandments anymore. Everybody wants to talk about grace, and their definition of grace has nothing to do with God's definition of grace. I realize that nobody wants to be disciplined anymore, that I realize that, that prayer and faithfulness and tithing and all those, I realize those are not popular anymore. And I realize that for me to preach that way keeps some people from joining or causes some people to leave. I understand that. And in a small town, everybody knows it. But I have to tell you, I'm willing to live with that rather than living with standing before God one day and spending hundreds of years him pointing out all the times when I backed off of his word to make people happy. I would rather live with that. It makes us ungrateful. It makes us irreverent. As for this Moses, we don't know what has become of him. That's not true. They knew. They knew exactly what had become of him. I mean, they're at the base of the mountain. God is up there. There's a cloud on top of the mountain. There's thunder and there's lightning. I mean, it's rolling down through that valley. If you're ever in the mountains and it's thundering and lightning, it's going to roll through the valleys and rumble through the valleys. They knew where he was. They had seen him go up. Moses, there he goes. Look, he's, uh, you can barely see him now. There he is. Now he's in the cloud. He's with God. And God is rumbling and God is thundering and God is speaking. They knew where he was. 
They just wished he wasn't there. They just wanted him to kind of go away, leave him alone. They had seen him go up in the cloud. They knew Moses was meeting with God. And there stood a people in the shadow of Shaddai, making a mockery of their God, building a golden calf, offering incense to it, worshiping, partying, drunkenness. And as I began to study this passage, I began to realize that there is a sin in the modern church and could be a sin among us of deadly familiarity with God. That we have seen God do so much. You realize there are churches that don't baptize anybody in a whole year. We baptize two this morning. We'll baptize one or two tonight. Almost every week we're baptizing people. It can become so familiar to us that we don't even know why we're clapping. Because we've forgotten what it was like when God saved us and we walked through the waters of baptism and obedience. A deadening familiarity with God. Now, I love to be casual. I mean, the best days for me, I have on my jeans, my shirt tail out, and no socks with shoes. I mean, those are great days for me. I love to be casual. I like to dress up, but I love to be casual. I mean, I like to, you know, I, I like to wear a tie and I, I like to dress up, but I, I love to be casual. But I want to tell you, there's a reason why we've asked you through the years to turn your phones off and to not bring coffee in here and to not do things like that because if you really understood you were in the presence of God, you wouldn't be worrying about the temperature of your latte. And if you were really in the presence of God, anybody that needed to talk to you could wait. You see, the reason that we don't do that in this room is because I don't want us to become casual before a holy God. And that's not about how you dress. That's about your heart. We don't need to have a casual heart toward God. And that's why I encourage you to come in and be here when it starts. Because we don't need to be casual. This is not a movie theater where you can come late because all you miss is 25 minutes of bad previews. Now, this is not the house of God. You are the house of God. But when we come into this place, Something in the realm of the mysterious happens where God meets with his people and there's a sense of the presence of God and you can't be casual about the sense of the presence of God because I know this, when I'm around godly people who sense God, who hear from God, who listen to God, who talk with God, who walk with God, when I'm around those kind of people, the last thing I'm worried about is who's texting me or who I need to call, or what's on my Facebook page, or who's Twittering anything, or if I've got a cup of coffee. or any, The only thing I'm thinking about is, 
I have the privilege for this moment to be in the presence of God. And I don't want to treat that casually. Exodus 32 and verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. And then lastly, the power of an intercessor. The power of an intercessor. Ian Bound says what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods but through men. He does not come on machinery but on men. He does not anoint plans but men, men of prayer. Now pick up in verse 11. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens. And all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he had said he would do to his people. Now, how did Moses pray? Let me give you a couple of quick things here. First of all, he prayed for grace. God had every right to be angry, every right to be angry. God had every right to call them an obstinate people. He had every right to wipe them off the face of the earth. And as he said, I'll get rid of all of them, Moses, and I'll start all over with you. It'd just be me and you, buddy. And Moses could have said, sounds like a good deal because I'm tired of it anyway. But he prayed for grace. Can I tell you something? When you're praying for grace, you're praying for people to get what they don't deserve, but what they need. He prayed for grace, but also he reminded God of the truths that God had revealed to him. He said, Lord, remember the covenant? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? He reminded God of the truths. What he did in praying for grace, he prayed God's word. He didn't say, now, Lord, I I don't really know what to pray right now. He said, Lord, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants whom you swore by yourself. God, you can't go back on your promises. Here's a man who stood in the presence of God and reminded God of what he had said. That's bold praying. But it's not arrogant praying when all you're doing is telling God what he said. You're just agreeing with God, and prayer is always agreeing with God. The third thing he did is he placed himself in a substitutionary role. He placed himself in a substitutionary role. Verse 31, then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. He didn't gloss over it. And they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not... Please blot me out from your book which you have written. By the way, by verse 31 and 32, you could write Romans 9, 1 through 3 because Paul prayed the same thing. 
Here's a man who placed himself in a substitutionary role. And here's what Moses said. God, you can send me to hell, but forgive your people. Now that's a man who's gotten on praying ground. That he loves others so much, he's willing to die for their sins so that they can be delivered from their sins. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? And Paul said it of the Jews. Let me be accursed. Let me be sent to hell if my brothers would be saved. Folks, that's praying on a level that very few of us ever get to. And so I want to give you some principles to ponder. One question, four principles. Some principles to ponder on revival. Number one, do you really want revival? Or are you just pretending? That's a real serious question. Do you really want it? Or you just like to check it out for a while and see if that's really what you want? Do you really want revival? Because that will require life change. Secondly, If you mean business with God, you can't condone any compromise with evil. If you mean business with God, you can't condone compromise with evil. Another way to say that is you can't compartmentalize God and say, God, I'll love you and worship you and serve you and you'll be Lord of my life on Sundays, but every other day of the week is mine to do with what I want. Number three, you must decide which side you're on. Remember when Moses came down off the mountain and they'd been worshiping the golden calf and he said, who's on the Lord's side? You better come stand over here. And that day, thousands died. Why? Because they'd made the wrong choice about whose side they were on. Number four, you must repent of all known sin. You must repent of all known sin, which means you get specific about your repentance, not general about it. And then finally, either we repent or we face judgment. Either we repent or we face judgment. You see, your sin is either judged at the cross or you pay for your sin yourself. But you can't have it both ways. Now let me read you two scriptures, and then I want to give you instructions about our impossible cards. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of of the contrite. And then 2 Peter 3.11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness?